The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I think having a burning of the red tape is actually our only hope, I think. Four. You said they're following the science. They're following the sturgeon. Three. What makes you think that you can rewrite the words of a classic? It's completely mad. Two. And I do think quite a lot of women have really lost out from the crisis. One. We have lift off. Another blast off from planet Earth and welcome as we touch down again on planet normal. This is the Telegraph podcast bringing you news and views from beyond the bubble with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, this has been a week which I think it's fair to say, Alison, an awful lot of inanimate objects will have been thrown (laughs) at the radio by planet normal listeners. In your Telegraph column, you weigh into the row over the BBC's determination to mess with Land of Hope and Glory, Rule Britannia, and other traditional songs at the last night of the proms, and we'll come to that. Oh, yes, we will. Yes, we will. But you're also furious, aren't you? Fuming about masks in schools. Another cave-in by the government, another last-minute change of strategy, seemingly in the face, see what I did there, of scientific evidence. Masks for kids, you say, are the final proof we've gone stark staring mad. Look... Masks are a placebo. (laughs) I've got no objection to adults wearing them if it makes other adults feel comfortable. But imposing them on children and teenagers who are the least likely to suffer from this virus. Jenny Harris, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, you might remember this, Liam. Jenny said very firmly that outside a clinical context, masks would do more harm than good. Now, let's just imagine... so. They don't have to wear masks in the classroom, teenagers, but they do have to wear them in all non-classroom school areas. So you've got a 15-year-old boy, let's call him Liam. He comes to school. Steady. comes to school. That's unlikely. Uh, Well, well, let's let's presume he decides to go to school. So entering the school premises, Liam puts on his mask, walks down the corridor, goes into the classroom, an enclosed space, which is the, the space where he's most likely to catch the virus, sitting down next to other people. But let's forget that illogicality. So Liam takes off his mask, shoves it in his trouser pocket, we can always hope, or it's somewhere even more unsavoury, into his rucksack, gets out of the lesson, puts the mask on again, walks down the corridor into another classroom, takes the mask off. The one thing, Liam, we know about mask wearing, you mustn't touch it, you mustn't Mm. fiddle with it, you mustn't touch your face. So what's going to happen is lots of very healthy young people are going to be having bacteria trapped inside this mask, which they're taking on and taking off. So essentially, you said they're following the science, they're following the sturgeon, Liam. Mm. I mean, how many times during this lockdown down has she run rings around the government in Westminster let's face it so she and that's the thing you get the sense that you know the Tories at Westminster are following the SNP in Holyrood don't you three days after Sturgeon makes her announcement on masks in schools the government changes its mind you know three days after Sturgeon announces that she's going to change the the GCSE the A-level or Scottish equivalent algorithm Westminster the government in Westminster changes its mind. It's like it's like Johnson is following rather than leading. 
Completely. We're being we're being ruled from Holyrood. Look, I understand what's going on. Boris has staked his professional reputation on the schools being fully open. And it's just over a week now, isn't it? Yeah. And so he's the, caving the fa- in like crazy. Well, it's do anything, literally turn cartwheels, because 65% of parents say they're a bit worried about their kids going back to school and 25% say they're very worried. You've actually had a surprising upswing in the number who say they're going to homeschool now, they're not going to send them at all. So this is a measure to get as many children back and let the government save face. But what they're not paying attention to and there are parents groups like the fantastic us for them which Mm. has been campaigning against masks and which is talking about lots of child psychologists talking out about the mental health effects the communication effects but the other interesting thing is that it's mandatory in areas where there will be a local lockdown so the government's made this interesting rider or, or provision which is that head teachers will be given the discretion in non-lockdown areas to decide what they're going to do about masks in their schools so you'll have some parents agitating oh you know little Liam's got to wear a mask and you'll equally have lots of parents who'll think it's dystopian it's quite frightening I think so it, it'll be interesting to see. That puts an awful lot of pressure on the head teacher doesn't it i mean i I, i'm sure most head teachers just want the government to say what needs to be done because the head teacher himself or herself will be faced with parents on either side of this now crazy debate baying for their their resignation you made a killer point in your column i thought Ah, when you said if it was i mean it must have been a fluke i mean (laughs) it was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if, if, it, if, it, if, if it was necessary to wear masks in school, why didn't the children of key workers who've been in classrooms throughout lockdown wear them? Those youngsters and their teachers have suffered no ill effects. Now, I could come back and say, yes, because then there were far fewer kids in schools. It was just, you know, somewhere between 5 and 10% of kids, depending on which part of the country you were at. So there were fewer people there. But the point does stand, doesn't it? Those youngsters and their teachers who have been going to school during lockdown, the, the, the youngsters of key workers, have suffered no ill effects. And I'm surprised that that cardinal fact that you've stated at the top of your piece this week hasn't been used more in this political debate. Well, you see, if you type enough words, eventually you arrive at something that, you, that you'll be impressed by. But there are, yeah, there's... If, you, if you sit an infinite monkey these down in, in front of the typewriter, one of them will type out Hamlet just by chance, right? Well, or... The whole or, play. Or, or a fact that Liam thinks, oh, that's quite impressive. Um but but something that struck me this week is the government finally did what we've been urging them to do. And it um, trotted out Jenny Harris and other people to say it's completely safe for children to go to school. You're more likely to be involved in a road accident on the way to school or to be struck by lightning than for your child to be hurt in school. That's a that's message. Progress. That, that's progress. I mean, we could argue that they could have been they've known those facts all yeah. along and they could have been saying them months ago. But anyway, let's let's thank God for small mercies. But so now you you have the message to parents it's incredibly safe to take your child to school but we will be requiring them to wear masks once they're inside so has the virus gone is it on the way out or isn't it it's it's just sending out again we again and again we see these contradictory mixed messages right let's move on uh, this escalating row concerning the bbc now alison all together land of, of horrible, horrible histories, histories. 
Smothering the free. How shall we disdain thee? Who are sick of thee? Who wrote that? Uh, me, sorry, <laughs> slight Mickey taking land of horrible histories. I, I was reimagining what the land of woke and sorry, which is the state we've got to now, uh, with the BBC deciding that uh, it's going to use the coronavirus when, of course, the Royal Albert Hall can't admit all those ghastly patriotic promenaders. So it's taken this opportunity, surprise, surprise, to to cut any singing of land of hope and glory and, and rule Britannia. Well, you know cherished songs harmless fun Liam at a time when we could really do with some some harmless fun and and I have to say congratulations this week to the BBC dig your own grave department because they've had a cracking week haven't they they're on fire they're on fire (laughs) so what they've done is they've had let's uh let's clobber the over 75s by making them now pay the tv license again so so that's you know even though you'd previously done a deal with the government that the BBC would be footing that the deal. The BBC would be footing yeah. that bill, let's exactly. Not that. So now let's let's really piss off, you know, the hardcore nice people at home who actually watch the telly. Who and pay the licence fee. Who pay the licence fee. And let's pander to the angry, woke youth who don't watch the TV, as I, as I can attest from watching my own young. So, so I think this is an astonishing own goal and um i've had the piece i wrote this morning about you know when will the self-righteous monstrous regiment of leftist vandals lay off our culture and traditions and that's had hundreds and hundreds of comments and and uh, for the from the bbc's point of view what a fatal possibly fatal error because this is people now defund the BBC that campaign's really getting momentum I've had scores of readers um, and listeners this morning planet normal people writing and saying right I'm cancelling my license fee it's running at about 500 people a day are cancelling the license fee it's it's it, it does seem as if the BBC's got a death wish. Cards on the table, Alison. You know, Land of Hope and Glory and, and Rule Britannia, they are not particularly my scene, OK? But, but I know many, many good, decent people who love The Last Night of the Proms. You know, the three people, the three closest friends of mine who really go to Last Night of the Proms whenever they can, one is Jewish, one is of Indian parentage, born in the UK, and the other was born in the Caribbean and they all love it and they love it because it represents to them pomp and and tradition of the UK a country that they their families have joined over recent generations and they really value what the UK stands for it means a hell of a lot to them and their families and even me I was brought up an Irish Catholic as you know but I get hairs on the back of my neck of course you do this is incredible music and Blimey, the tunes. I mean, Elkhart, it's a belter of a tune. It's a belter of a tune. And to think that you can manipulate the words, you can rewrite the thing. I mean, one ridiculous senior BBC executive, she's saying, oh, what do I do? I'd launch a competition (laughs) and we can rewrite the words. You know, what makes you think that you can rewrite the words of a classic? It's completely mad to do that. And it's, it's anathema to people who are... You know, the core audience of the BBC, people it seems increasingly 
not only to not understand, but to not want to understand and actually want to actively disdain. That's right. It's sort of contempt for the consumer. So I don't think anyone who's sung along to those songs has had any sense that they're talking about colonialism. They're just enjoying how rarely, Liam, do we as British people get to celebrate being us. It's just a lovely smiles on faces, people really enjoying themselves. What what is it? It seems to be in the Anglo-Saxon world, doesn't it? That this sort of leftist self-loathing. It's all in Orwell, isn't it? Orwell told us this sort of self-loathing of the English establishment of their Englishness. Celts don't seem to have it. You know, Scots don't have it. The Welsh don't have it. um, The Irish don't have it in many ways that they love their countries. But it's the kind of English establishment who disdain lower order English people. It's like an English disease. And there are far too many of people suffering from this disease within the higher echelons uh, and the decision making rungs of the BBC. But I think what you know, people on planet normal don't want to be made to feel ashamed of, of our country. We have obviously there have been bad, sorry episodes in our history, and we can reflect on those. But as you say, we now going forward. The irony is that in recent years, the proms are seeing great diversity. They're broadcasting from all the capitals of the four United Kingdom uh, c- countries, which is fabulous. And everyone, you know, the Welsh thing, you know, my hand blavanado, and you know, all the all our wonderful all our wonderful regional songs. What was interesting this week, I think, was that we did see Boris back on sort of Boris-like form saying, you know, responding to the the, the proms debacle and saying, I think it's time we stopped our cringing embarrassment about our history, about our traditions, about our culture. We stopped this general bout of self-recrimination and wetness. So um, interestingly, did you hear, Liam, he said, They've they've tried to stop me saying this, which I which I thought was 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 interesting. I wondered who they were. I wondered who they were. It's good what he said, but it was late, Alison. He should have said it earlier. He shouldn't have let those pushing for these ridiculous changes to get make so much ground and for the public to get so upset about it. He seems to have this strategy of of letting uh, the sort of cultural warriors uh, make huge advances, you know, capturing the ground of centrist common sense, taking up huge swathes of planet normal, and then he sort of lightly rebuffs them and gets the headline and then leaves it at that. But, you know, they've they've taken all this ground and they haven't seeded it. <laughs> that's that's the problem. So just before we move on, let's see the perfect backlash to, to all this, B, you know, this absolute BBC being out of sympathy with the public. So Vera Lynn, singing Land of Hope and Glory, as we speak, is holding positions on the Amazon chart of number one, number two, number three, number four, number five and number eight. And there are plans to have an unwoke choir singing outside Broadcasting House on the last night of the prom. So that might be something. Let, let's, let, let's see if they change tack because it's, um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a pretty pivotal moment, I think. So how about we hear from this week's Planet Normal guest? She's a lady who combines finance and politics, brains with style. Helena Morrissey, who, from a humble background, blazed a trail into the City of London despite being a mother of nine, and now she's a new girl in the House of Lords, where, with her rather effective brand of well-informed straight talk, she's bound to make a big impact. Alison, how'd you get on? Well, really? 
really, really well, Liam. I mean, Helena is very, very interesting. We we crossed paths because we were both very passionate about improving working prospects for working mothers. One reason I thought she'd be a lovely guest for us on Planet Normal is she's not been afraid to go out on a limb and take the unpopular stance for people of her position. So she, as you know, she was a big champion of Brexit and all the opportunity it could bring to our our country. Very unfashionable in her circles to do that. And what why I wanted to us to talk to her now really is because she's been very outspoken, unlike many business and city people, about the baleful effects of lockdown and the need to get out of this paralysed fear and restart the economy. Helena Morrissey, welcome to Planet Normal. We are providing for you specially a chic spacesuit in a choice of colours. I thought <laughs> coral, coral, what do you think? Coral, perfect. I could add it to my Instagram, sort of, you know, what to wear today. What to wear today, because you're going to be making this bumpy journey to Planet Normal from the increasingly insane world we live in. It's exactly five months this week since the Prime Minister imposed a national lockdown, saying that we had to sacrifice our precious freedoms to prevent the NHS being overwhelmed. You said in a strong piece you wrote for The Telegraph recently that our pursuit of safety is increasingly dangerous. What what did you mean by that? We all have risks in our lives. I mean, every day just getting on with life is a risky business. You cannot avoid that. If you run a business or involved in a business, you have multiple risks. It's like a big matrix that you are constantly assessing. But actually, in the past five months, we've behaved as if we've only got one risk, and that is imminent death from coronavirus. And of course, in reality, hospital admissions are falling, thank goodness. I mean, this is all wonderful. And when people are admitted to hospital, the death rate is falling. So this is all good news. And we've learned so much in the last five months that should be quite reassuring. I don't think we should wait till the virus is eradicated or eliminated or even for a vaccine. We cannot afford to do that because there are so many other risks. And so that's why I think it's very dangerous to pursue and to persevere with this There's only one risk in life approach. I think everyone's down on the government like a ton of bricks. And actually, I want to express some sympathy or empathy with the idea that, you know, back in March, none of us had any clue what was going to happen. So I get it that early days, you know, very difficult to decide what to do. But I suspect that the prime minister, as a human being, he has been badly affected by the fact that he caught it and was so ill, to all accounts, nearly died. And that's bound to influence his assessment of the risks. I think he needs, you know, other people around him to hopefully counter Yes, during the referendum campaign and after Leave had won, we had an awful lot of prominent business people warning about the catastrophic effects of Brexit. But we haven't heard a peep from those same business people about the catastrophic effects of lockdown, have we? No, it's been eerily quiet. And I've thought quite a lot about why, because, you know, it would seem such an obvious thing to protect our own businesses, even if they weren't doing it for any kind of broader altruistic reason. But I think you have seen, obviously, vocal protests from those sectors who are most hard hit. So the aviation sector, hairdressers, I think, put up a very good fight. And and beauty salons. Beauty salons and so forth. But I think big business, and again, I, I think partly because they're all afraid that they don't know what exactly might happen. And I've spoken to business leaders who say, well, look, we've been advised by our lawyers, and this is absolute truth, that because we can't guarantee people's safety if they're back in the office, then we really can't put pressure on people to come back in the office. What about... The UK, we learnt 
last week has got the lowest number of workers back in the office of basically any country in the developed world. I think France is on about 76, 78% workers back in the office and we're on we're on a miserable 33%. Has our furlough scheme been too long and too generous? Well, I, th- I mean, I, to be honest, I'm amazed that there's so many people back at work in France, given, you know, historically all the yeah. sort of sense of uh, French, you know, the 35 week <laughs> yeah. effort and so forth. What has happened? We've swapped roles. Yes. I think it's a combination of, because obviously a lot of those people who aren't back in the office, they haven't been furloughed. So definitely the furlough scheme, I think, credit, it's been a good safety net and it's prevented people from being unemployed to date. It's not going to last for very much longer though. But the problem is I just think people are very comfortable working from home and they're just not being given enough incentive and encouragement and a sense that actually it's really important for other reasons. For example, young people, it's very uncomfortable if you have shared accommodation, yeah. cramped accommodation. You know, when I was researching for an article that I wrote, you know, there was stories of young people 20 hours a day in the same four walls at the height of lockdown, you know, because they were working in their bedroom and they weren't seeing another person. I think this is going to drive people absolutely mad. But then for another part of the population, and I would count myself in that and you'd be in the same boat, uh, Alison, you know, we fairly, you know, we're comfortably off. We have enough space in our homes. Yeah. It's very nice not having to get on the train and so forth. But actually, I think we do have a responsibility to get back to the office. And I would just love again to see the messaging change from, okay, well, if you feel like it, and it's a sunny day, and you don't have to sit next to anybody on the tube, come in if you'd like to actually, you know what, we're going to get back as normal as we can. And please come into work. In fact, we've decided to only wear it's a small thing, but we've decided to only wear the surgical masks. I once bought one of those flowery ones and then realized that this is making it all sort of fun and fashionable. Whereas actually it's not, yes. you know, we are adopting the mask wearing because we're told to and because it might make it safer. That's good. But let's remind ourselves how unusual this is and let's not get used to it and make it into some sort of normal in the new sense, which I know we don't agree is the way we should be thinking of it. No, and I saw some sort of, you know, matching masks to go with outfits, and I really recoiled. Even a bikini. (laughs) (laughs) Which I probably shouldn't mention, because that might conjure up the wrong images. But, you know, just this idea, you know, I'm thinking, well... I don't know. I wouldn't want to go to the beach if I have to wear a, a mask. Not only, anyway. not only that, but really you would very much struggle to get the coronavirus on a beach in the blazing sunshine. So Captain Halligan has sent some economics questions for you to mm-hmm. put you on your metal. These are the hard ones, are they? Okay. These are the hard <laughs> ones, yeah. So you became the head of Newton Asset Management at the astonishing young age of 35. You've got deep knowledge of finance in the city. Government debt has just gone over 100% of GDP, two trillion pounds. Helena, I think for the first time since 1961, when at least we were recovering from a world war. How worried are you? I am very worried. I think we're running out of policy options, certainly any sort of monetary or fiscal options. I think there are things that can be done. I know Captain Halligan, as you call him, is very anti-quantitative easing, which is kind of the mopping up of all the debts being issued almost at the the same moment. And I am too. I think we didn't have inflation from it after the financial crisis because there was just so much production of goods and services. But of course, if the economy is shrunk and if business is going out of business, then that won't happen. We'll have a smaller supply. So I think we could unleash inflation in the longer term. So it just, you know, people have talked about it as a giant Ponzi scheme, etc. But it just is supposed to be a short-term policy, not the long-term solution. The only long-term solution is to have sustainable jobs growth. And I, I think there are ways of doing that, but it's going to require, I think Rishi Sunak's had a great crisis, um, but his, you know, perhaps his biggest test is yet to come because we've had these sticking plaster measures and 
that's just sort of bought us a bit of time, which we needed. But of course, we now need to move into a, a proper plan. Liam, with his doomy Irish melancholy nature, <laughs> thinks we're going to be four million unemployed by Christmas. Do you, do you think that sounds about, is that right? I, I think it's perfectly possible. Yes, I do. I think that is not an extreme scenario. It's a terrifying one because if people get health issues from poverty. Again, going back to our original conversation about risks, and you just cannot separate out people's you know health and wealth. So this is a, a, a tragedy on a grand scale. And I think the government you know needs to do bold, exciting things like the Eat Out to Health Out, Out scheme, slashing VAT for hospitality. The day, I think it was in March, it was one day when they overnight, the government said that restaurants, instead of having to apply for planning permission to change of use to be hot takeaways, could just just offer takeaways. So all of these sort of bold, you know, cut the red tape measures just need to be done on a much bigger scale. It needs to be much easier for employers to employ people. I would slash national insurance, certainly for young people. I think having a burning of the red tape, and I'm not talking about financial regulation and suddenly everybody getting excited about saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's a huge amount of difficulty and bureaucracy for people setting up businesses and access to funds for doing that. It has to be everything thrown at this because this is actually our only hope, I think, to really, really drive proper growth, not just putting off the inevitable. So one of the many things I admire about you is you're not afraid to go against the grain. Well, neither are you, Alison. <laughs> well, mutual you're in a more prominent position you you were a big champion of brexit and the opportunities it would bring us very few city or business people agreed with you did you get any abuse for that did you feel like a bit of a pariah I did, yes. And I suppose what was most depressing for me, if I'm really honest, was that there actually were quite a number of people who contacted me to tell me that they agreed with me, but they felt that they couldn't speak out. Obviously, that made me feel maybe I had well, even if I felt I had made a mistake, I, I genuinely could not have lived with myself it, for such an important time for our country not to speak out at that moment. It just felt it was such a critical thing that if you could influence what happened and talk about some of the opportunities if we did come out of the EU, then absolutely that was something that I just felt I had to do. But I was shocked that people would say that to me. And there was, even though a lot of people say, well, businesses have to stay neutral, their customers are on both sides of the argument, etc. That wasn't the, the city's stance at all. Uh, so yeah. many of the big city firms, they supported financially the, the Remain campaigns and were quite aggressive, I would say, in the press about, you know, all the disasters that would befall us if we left. So it was kind of lonely. I wasn't completely alone, but a very small number of people were outed as I was as a Brexiteer. <laughs> did you do you think you lost any work? Is there are there any opportunities that maybe were closed down to you because of that? Oh, uh, to be honest, I think you know I, I was not put forward for certain things. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Obviously, I'm a positive person. I like to move on with my life. I feel very engaged in some of the things I'm doing now. But I was left under no illusion, and actually. You know, there are also sort of humiliating moments when I was sort of, or people trying to humiliate me anyway, when I was, you know, I remember in one meeting, it was about absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. And this guy came in and he just shouted at me saying, well, I hope you're happy now. You've destroyed the country. And it was in front of others. And it was just unnecessary and uncivilized. And it was just overall a very disappointing episode for me. But I, I did also, you know, I don't have any regrets in the sense that I genuinely felt that it was an important thing to speak up. And I felt that the city was being short term and thinking of the, yeah, the immediate hassle mm. and not about the greater good for the country. And I don't think I could have lived with myself if I, if I just towed along with that line. 
that was something that I think all of us who maybe took a bit of personal risk through it, we we bonded, didn't we? We, uh, yeah, we, were, we were clinging. It's like that, um, what is it, that famous painting of the raft with people yeah, clinging, clinging on, on the edge. Clinging on the edge. But we got there, Helena, we got there. Well, also the key thing was that, as it turned out, this was the way that the majority of the population felt. That's the thing I kept coming back to, that we were not sort of uh, spouting forth a uh, really sort of extreme view as it was often portrayed. This was actually, a, is actually a, a mainstream view and therefore, you know, needed to be said. So how do you think the Brexit negotiations are going? Are, are we going to get a deal? I would be surprised, to be honest. Uh, at the moment, it feels that they're miles apart. And uh, I think we've got used to this idea of it's just posturing and then at the 11th hour, there'll be a deal. I think this country, I mean, obviously, coronavirus is a very big threat. And we've talked a lot about that. The world is in a a real state of disarray in many senses, with, I think, still very little understanding about why people voted for Brexit, why people voted Donald Trump, etc. There's a real sort of them and us kind of disconnect that I think is very damaging. But I think Brexit, once we're through it, we'll be like, well, why were we so fussed about deals and so forth? I mean, we'll be on, if we're on third country terms, then um, most countries in the universe are on third country terms with the EU and it doesn't stop their economy from growing. But we need to get our mojo back. We need to be focused on growth. And I just think we need to think a bit bigger than what's the next, you know, few weeks deal making and so forth. It will be what it will be and we'll be, should be fine either way. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! One of the things that brought you to prominence was founding the 30% Club, a group aimed at increasing the number of boardroom positions occupied by women in FTSE 100 companies. What struck me about you is that you were determined to get more women into these positions, but you were opposed to quotas, which some argued for, because you thought they were demeaning to women. Do you still think that's right? And has it been successful, your approach? So, yes, I still am opposed to quotas. I mean, I think it's a very sort of sledgehammer to crack a nut kind of approach as well. I think it's very sort of old fashioned to say you have to do this rather than hearts and minds. And yes, pleased to say we have over 30% of the, not just the FTSE, but actually the next 250 companies, board seats are occupied by women now. I mean, it was a very uh, positive experience. I learned a lot from it, but I did learn that actually once people really get behind something, once they genuinely believe in it, that it is a good thing, rather than being told what to do or sort of hectored about it, then they became such passionate advocates. So this is, this is a lot of powerful men, really, wasn't men, it? Men, yeah, that was the difference, yeah. Mm. So the, the members of the 30% Club up to this day are mainly men because they're the chairman of big companies. It was so different getting them involved and, and, and it showed me that before, women talking to women about women's issues, you know, might make us feel less lonely but actually wasn't going to get us the seats of power and we needed men to say we'd like you to join us and we we don't want it just to be nice to you but we think you can add something and I genuinely think that's what people now think but they didn't initially and I and that was my first I mean not my very first but my first big sort of 
test of when people really didn't like something I was doing. But, you know, resilience and all of that, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I, I'm grateful for that experience now because people, I mean, one guy said I was going to destroy British business and he was a FTSE chairman. Gosh. And I was like, well, I don't think women are that powerful. I mean, not sure we can, <laughs> we're sort of a few more of us around the table and the whole country's going to, you know, go downhill. But it was, you know, people were extraordinarily irate and antagonistic about something that now seems perfectly normal. So it gives me hope that actually, you know, people's mindset changes or the lens through which we look at things can change. I think that given some of the extraordinarily contradictory measures that have been coming out of the so-called SAGE unit, but I think a few a few mums around the table saying, but for us to get back to work, you need to open the schools to take one example with something that didn't mm. seem to have occurred to them. I just want to talk to you a bit now about the effect that the pandemic has had on women. I was thinking that when my novel, I don't know how she does it, which was about a hedge fund manager in the city trying to juggle work and family, I didn't know you then, but it, but it had some parallels with your life as, as we've discussed. It was clear from the reaction to that novel to me that a lot of working mothers wanted more flexible working, but there was this male command and control model that you had to be present in the office and working from home was seen as a bit weak, a bit downgraded. But now we know that working from home is not only possible, but it can be very good business for companies and individuals. So do you think there will be a seismic shift in the way that we work? And is that good for women? So I started thinking this was incredibly good news for women, that something that had carried a lot of stigma in the office, if you'd asked to work from home, or even flexibly, you might be working in the office for different hours. Up until this point, I think it's always been treated with a bit of suspicion. Whereas now, because CEOs and other senior executives have been forced to work from home, they can see it's going to be very productive and actually quite egalitarian as well. When you have all these Zoom calls and it's just a gallery, I do think it's a bit less uh, intimidating for people who otherwise might not get a word in and be sat around the edge of the table and that sort of thing. So um, I was very excited about that. But of course, the reality is that women have taken on the brunt of homeschooling when that was happening, the majority of domestic chores Mm -hmm. and there's obviously a lot of sectors. I mean, Mark Spencer's just announcing job reductions and obviously hospitality having been really bearing the brunt of the, the slowdown up until now. A lot of these sectors employ a lot of women. And people are talking now, obviously, that the retail sector can uh, specifically, a lot of the physical jobs in the shops are, are helped by women, but of course the, the online delivery crew often are, are men. So I think it's a much more complicated picture than I first envisaged. And I do think quite a lot of women have really lost out from the crisis. I don't know about you, but certainly the initial delight during lockdown of having my two grown children home was rapidly overtaken by the what's for lunch mum when I was <laughs> trying to write my column. I forgot those days of where did we put, which always, <laughs> which always means can you go and fetch Punch it? it for me. So, um, so I certainly think that there's still this a little bit of the woman's job is fitting in round the domestic chores, whereas, you know, sort of the man comes out and sort of turns on the computer and gets a round of applause and then goes back into his study. But let's not be bitter, Helena. No, no, no. And of course, I have to be, you know, another shout out for the great Richard, my husband, for, you know, he's done the cooking and we were 13 people for the real lockdown time because my daughter and her husband and our two grandchildren came and stayed with us, which was lovely, but obviously meant that, you know, the 
the supermarket. The, the I mean, Richard literally spent most of his day either in a supermarket queue or in the kitchen. And then I used to have to run from one Zoom call to put on the washing and then run upstairs and then do a half an hour's ironing in between. And just, I mean, it was quite difficult to kind of just do that. And then with the schooling, I just sort of ran around the house checking that everybody was sort of, you know, whether anyone needed any help. So yes, I think a lot of women just really lost out and ended up squeezing paid work into the sort of 6am to 9am or after the children gone to bed and really, really being quite exhausted. So that's not sustainable, clearly. No. Now you, you've just, you've alluded to this, you've got nine children, what age between? 11 to 28. 11 to 28, wow. And grandmother to two, to two easy shoe-in for world's most glamorous granny, if I may say so. Um, <laughs> no, I know some much more glamorous than me, but I'll I'll take the compliment, thank okay, you. Take the com- yeah, please take, take the compliment, we've got to learn to take the compliment. Now as a mother myself, I'm you know, got two kids in their early twenties. My son was uh, is twenty one today, and we had he had a party, little party for his friends last night. And you know, watching them, he he gave a little speech, and he said, "I'm so looking forward to see what becomes of all of us." And mm. you know, my heart did a kind of you know a squeeze really. And mm. I thought, you know, you've talked about the being sacrificed in the war on the virus. Do, do you share my fears for them? I really do, because I think, uh, again, going back to the beginning of all of this in March this year, I think we all, because even then, I think it was obvious that if you were elderly, then you were more susceptible. And I think people were prepared and willing, and it was right to do whatever we could to, you know, make sure that there wasn't an utter catastrophe. But then I think, again, we're sort of weighing up one generation against another, and we're not really being fair. The youth of today, as they call it, are now going to be saddled with this huge government debt, national debt. The jobs prospects are very, you know, scant at present, very scant. Guess. And I think it's a very, very worrying time. And we, we need to, I think, reprioritize and say, actually, we're going to not forget about the elderly and or the people who need to be shielded, but actually to prioritize our strategy on making sure that this generation has a chance on every count at the moment. I think it's looking pretty dismal. And that just feels very unfair and, and wrong of us older people to sort of prioritize our needs. We should be you know, not least back in the office, helping them if they have got a job to actually learn from others. So we're going to see Lady Morrissey <laughs> and you're going to rock that ermine in the House of Lords, I tell you. Well, sadly, sadly, they're not doing robes anymore because of coronavirus. Are they no. not? Oh. I mean, there's no robes involved. It's going to be, yes, less grand effect, but in, in a way more, perhaps more relevant to the current yes. situation. But anyway. So, so tell me, what, what will be your themes and your passions in, in, in the House of Lords? Well, obviously, I will be flying the flag still for um, gender and other diversity. I think we've gone so far but we seem to be unwinding a lot of the progress. I've also taken on the role as the lead non-exec director at what will soon be the FCDO, the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office, so the merged entity between the Foreign Office and DFID. So I've been doing this role since the 1st of August and um, this is I suppose where I'm hoping to in addition to being the laws to add some some value to the government. I, I'm very much a supporter of the merger. I think it will genuinely help Britain to be more of a force for good in the world. And I know there's lots of anxiety about what it means for the development programme. But from what I've seen, that's been thought through quite carefully. So yes, a slightly new string to my bow, that one. Sounds a fantastic job. Will you be trying to steer target funds more effectively? I mean, we've seen some big waste in the in the, in some of the development budget areas which did cause people concern i think yeah, so i mean what part of my role is to make sure there's good governance over 
spending and strategy and um, obviously also about people. So yes, but I'm obviously I won't be doing the aid. I'm a non-executive, but I will certainly be trying to ensure that the processes and also the audits around them are going to satisfy people that the money is wisely spent and that the impact is is great. There's a lot to do ahead of the merger, but I am I'm enjoying that. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Dame Helena, soon to be Lady Morrissey. And I hope you'll invite me for a, a schooner of sherry at the oh, House yes. of The last time I was there was interviewing Lord Longford, who brought two large schooners of sherry at about 11am in the morning. <laughs> and by lunchtime, I was I was incapable of asking any questions. I think I said that... Um, the Lord was as sober as a judge and the lady that was me was as drunk as a Lord. So very good line. Helena, thank you so much. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you so much, Alison, for inviting me on. I think she's a great guest, don't you? I think a, a worthy passenger on the Planet Normal rocket. I mean, wasn't it interesting to hear her say how she was treated over Brexit, a very prominent woman shouted at by a, a man in a meeting for destroying, the, are you happy you've destroyed the country? And as she said, which I think could be almost our mantra on Planet Normal, Liam, this is not an extreme view. It was a mainstream view. And yet you could be treated as a pariah for holding it. Yeah, the city during the Brexit debate and particularly after the referendum had gone for leave was a hotbed, really, of activism to reverse the referendum and also handing out intellectual and other sort forms of punishment <laughs> beatings to people like Helena Morrissey, people like myself, frankly, who were basically putting forward a point of view that turned out to be the majority point of view. People like uh, Helena, people like myself, we were desperately concerned at the political impact of reversing a referendum. I mean, the impact on the sense that the UK is a is a country where democracy works, where there's governance, you know, where there's, you know, some kind of respectable level of political risk and political tolerance. And what he Helena Morrissey has done in recent years is she has emerged as a softly spoken, extremely polite, but absolutely relentless advocate for her view of the world. And her view of the world is actually far, far more prominent and widely respected than vast swathes of our political and media establishment and our financial establishment are willing to recognise. And in that, you know, that eminently reasonable way she has, but she has wrought huge change. You'll know that the composition of boardrooms has changed, but she wanted to work collaboratively with men, not pitch, you know, not see men as the enemy. And I, I, I really approve of that because we men and women have to move forward together. You know, there's one other thing I did want to raise in this podcast, Alison. I thought it would be remiss not to mention another aspect of the column that you wrote this week. And that was where you quoted a quite incredible conversation you'd had with one of our leading surgeons. That's right. Uh, amazing guy called Jai Chitnavis. He's Mr. Knee, Liam. If you ever crock your knee, uh, oh, Jay's I've done that your... already. I've already yeah, been. Okay. Yeah. Well, Jay... <laughs> that ship has sailed. <laughs> Jay, Jay's your man, and he got he got in touch with Planet Normal to talk about his dreadful fear about what he calls the hysterical and suicidal societal pantomime of fear, which is preventing hospitals getting back to anywhere near full operating capacity. He works out of private hospitals, which are still 
commandeered by the NHS, apparently being paid millions a month to remain at the service of the NHS. He showed me a teetering tower of files Mm. of suffering patients who need, desperately need to be operated on. They will have been waiting for over six months. And, And he said rather brilliantly, you know, that five months ago, the British people were told to support the NHS and save lives. And now it's high time for the NHS to do its job and save people. Jai Chitnavas, who really bravely, and I know because we discussed it as two journalists, he's come on the record in his own name and with his permission, his explicit permission, you've quoted his name. And again, that is a tremendously brave thing for a clinician to do uh, when he or she is working within the NHS, which can be extremely aggressive at closing down dissent and closing down debate, as we've seen as journalists over the years. But Liam, it shouldn't be brave, should it, for uh, a senior medic to be able to talk about what's going on? I mean, Um, and what's obviously wrong? He's pointing out what is obviously wrong. Well, he thinks it's a you know you don't need a crystal ball to see this horrendous catastrophe of undiagnosed cases, undertreated people coming down the line towards us. This week, Liam, we've got. About 453 COVID patients in all the hospitals in England. And Jay Chitnavis was thinking that they were perhaps back to 25% of capacity, even though many have been COVID free for over six weeks. So what the hell is going on? We've got people out there, I'm hearing from scores of Telegraph readers saying they're unable to access this health service that, that we all we all contribute to. And uh, Jay said to me that originally he'd heard a returning date for full functioning was September the 1st. Now it's March 2021. He said, I've even heard March 2022. Very, very important testimony from obviously a hugely experienced clinician. And can we just say, Liam, that if there are any doctors or nurses listening or if there are any people who've been trying to access the NHS without any success, please do email us and we'll be really happy to uh, keep the pressure on about this because this National COVID service has rapidly got to get back to a national health service. And that's a good time to go on to our listener emails. Thanks to all of you who wrote into us at Planet Normal at telegraph.co.uk. So Anna Moore was one of many people who sent thundering emails about the BBC and the land of hope and glory horror. Right, that's it. We can now officially say that the BBC has totally gone off its rocker from the ages of nine to 90. Promenaders and last nighters look forward to wonderful massive gatherings all around the country, waving Union Jacks, smiling from ear to ear, rejoicing in togetherness and beautiful music. Perhaps the last night of all nights of the year witnesses more happiness and community smiles than any other. And this year of all the years in which we need to rejoice in all the togetherness and feelings of joy, the BBC, in its ridiculous woke wisdom, decides to wreck the evening by axing voices from all all our lovely traditional last night songs. I wonder just how little they realise the lasting damage this will do to the corporation could be terminal if they are not careful. Ridiculous decisions, ridiculous behaviour. Well said, Anna. Petra writes in to ask, has somebody lost the plot? 
How many videos are there online telling us how to wear masks safely and effectively? That means clean hands, put on mask, leave it on, don't touch it, hands off your face, take your mask off, only when ready to bin it, clean hands again. So says Petra, school children are expected to don a mask here, take it off there, put it back on after for five minutes in the corridor, <laughs> off again in the classroom, on again for an hour, then off again, then off again. Before the end of the day, there will be hundreds of kids all over the place with filthy, contaminated rags hanging around their necks. And that's supposed to be helpful. Bonkers, says Petra. Totally agree with Petra. Right, Paul Featherstone, latest episode of leftist vandalism. I always look forward to the last night as it fills me with the warmth of hope and that all adversity that comes our way can be conquered. Sets me up for the winter. What is wrong with that? The songs have nothing to do with slavery and oppression. Just the opposite, in fact. I am looking forward to the choir of the great unwoke singing lustily outside Broadcasting House on the last night. Unless the lyrics are reinstated, I will not be renewing my TV licence, no doubt being white, conservative, British and having worked in this horrendous anti-woke racist establishment for 47 years. They will find me out of my meagre pension. After all, as Alison says, people like me deserve it. So that's it for Voyage number 14. Time to return again from this haven of clear thinking, this sanctuary of common sense that's planet normal, to the madness of the real world. Keep those emails rolling in, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and family, anyone in your life who you think might enjoy the kind of discussions you've just heard. As Helena Morrissey said, we are the mainstream. We'd be so grateful if you could leave us a review, kind one please, on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is free to listen to on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app. Subscribing to a podcast doesn't mean subscribing to the Telegraph itself. It just means the podcast is automatically downloaded to your phone or tablet each week so you never miss an episode. And if you have any questions about podcasts, and as we know, Liam, even Alison has managed to figure some of this out. How to listen, where to find the best ones. You know nothing. <laughs> I know nothing, Mr. Faulty. <laughs> There's a very useful article explaining all things podcasts on the Telegraph website and we'll put the link to that in the show notes of this episode. And thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett and our editor, Theo Leludis. And until next time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>